Al Jazeera podcast. Maybe you've seen the picture. Half a dozen infants swaddled in green hospital gowns, presumably designed for adults. Diapers too big and bodies too small. They are preemies taken from their incubators because Shifa Hospital has no power to run. Al-Shifa Hospital ran out of fuel, forcing doctors to remove dozens of premature babies from incubators. Six preemies have already died. That was Monday. Early Wednesday morning, a doctor there told Al Jazeera that Israeli officials called Shifa Hospital, telling them to prepare for a raid. And they advised the people, they asked them not to look through the windows or the doors and that everyone might be at risk if they doesn't do anything. So, uh, and then... Hours later, it began. Breaking news from Gaza, where Israeli forces are carrying out a raid on Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa. The director of health says he's heard gunfire and the movement of Israeli tanks inside the complex. Another doctor there was interviewed by Reuters as the raid was happening. We, we try to avoid being near the windows, but you know, we know the, the gunshot will, do, will come through the wall. It doesn't protect us at all. For weeks, Israel claimed the hospital is hiding Hamas's command center. Israel says al-Shifa sits on top of a Hamas headquarters, using the hospital's patients as human shields, which Hamas denies. Now inside, Israel issued a new statement. They're now saying uh, there is no indication of the presence of uh, captives inside the hospital and that the scan uh, continues. With a mounting human catastrophe and the global outcry for a ceasefire growing louder, we ask what is under Al-Shifa Hospital and what will it take for the fighting to end? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Zoran Kusowatz. I've been a journalist uh, specialized in military and security matters and uh, covering wars for over 40 years, many of them in the Middle East. We caught up with Zoran, who's also reported on Gaza over the years, but he lives in Belgrade now. So Zoran, right now, the Israeli army is surrounding Al-Shifa Hospital. They've cut off power, fuel. Israel is conducting a raid on the enclave's largest hospital, carrying out what it calls a precise and targeted operation against Hamas. Israel is doing this because it claims Hamas's command center is under the hospital, stretching down several floors. We are seeing pushback with reporters pushing some U.S. officials to be specific about the evidence that underlies this belief that the hospital is a command center. You know for certain, you know for certain, the United States of America, the intelligence community, knows for certain that Hamas is using that as a command center. So I will say, as a general matter, yes, we do know that Hamas uses hospitals. Given the scale of the humanitarian disaster that could unfold at this hospital, do you think that the U.S. and Israel need to show a higher burden of proof than we've seen so far? 
Uh, it, this is a very difficult question because in past wars, um, I have personally witnessed many occasions of various armed groups. Those non-state combatants, those armed groups, uh, will resort to things that are unacceptable for an army. That would be a clear violation of the laws of war. And uh, I do not know, I cannot say, I don't know what uh, proof short of going into the basement of hospitals would be needed. But I have to say that there are precedents of hospitals being misused. Now, of course, if you have that many people in Shifa Hospital, I, I'm sort of suspicious because with so many people, someone uh, would have snapped a photo if there was something. Right. Someone would have come up to witnesses saying, oh, yes, you see, we are trying to run a hospital here and the bad guys from Hamas, they're running a control center underneath. We haven't seen that. Yes, and you've actually had doctors and members of the Red Cross saying, we haven't seen any of this stuff. I want to ask you about these tunnels. We know that Hamas has an extensive network of underground tunnels. The Israeli army calls it a vast underground city. But I think it's hard for people to kind of picture this. And maybe you can help fill in some of the details for our listeners. Well, first of all, I have to admit I haven't been to these tunnels. I don't think many reporters have, but we have good reason to believe that the network indeed is very long. The Gaza Strip is just 25 miles long, but security analysts say the network of tunnels beneath it is extensive. Freed hostage Jochaved Liefschitz called it a spider's web. Some pretty good uh, evidence came up to suggest it might be even up to 500 kilometers. The art of tunneling since the 80s, when the tunnels first appeared as simple smuggling tunnels between Gaza and Egypt, uh, has advanced considerably. In a desert environment, you could dig these tunnels so easily, except in the very coastal belt, a couple of hundred meters from the sea, where sand goes down deep. Part of it is uh, clay, and it has great carrying capacity from above, but from the side you can dig it with your hands. Those types of soil are very conducive to tunneling. If we imagine the tunnels to be like a network of main tunnels, they are probably two men wide. Many of them are done in prefabricated concrete elements hmm. that look like proper tunnels, like they're just smaller. They have ledges where they have seen missiles being stored there. There's electricity, there's communications. And uh, this has enabled Hamas to use pretty secure communications. Now, these wires that they carry internet and uh, old-fashioned telephone lines, if you're on the ground and if you're using wireless technology, cell phones and wireless internet, uh, that can be intercepted. If you have good equipment, like Israel does, the drones flying above specialized uh, aircraft and ships, they can all intercept this and they can de decode your communication, record it, etc. But if you go underground, you go back to the old-fashioned wire technology, the wires can be shielded yeah. 
and you can communicate freely without worrying that someone will record your communications. So this is a huge advantage. Yeah, Zoran, that is so fascinating because it just shows you how adaptable people can be. And here you have a a group that is confined in terms of space and has this opponent that has an advantage of air power and signals power and the ability to jam signals. And these tunnels have found a way to mitigate both of those, um, which brings me kind of to my next question. When you look at these two opponents, you know, on, on paper, there's really no contest. Israel's army has an overwhelming advantage in terms of money and technology, but this war isn't being fought on paper. It's being fought in Gaza. And so far, we've seen footage of Hamas using drones and, and coming out of tunnels to hit tanks with anti-tank missiles or, or with bombs. And I keep hearing this term, asymmetrical. What makes this conflict asymmetrical? Just about everything about it is asymmetrical. The attackers, the Israelis, if we imagine a video game, so they would be attacking the city coming across open fields and everybody can see them. Now, inside the city, if you have a million people in the city, and if you have Hamas fighters who do not necessarily wear uniforms, when they start moving underground, that advantage becomes even more pronounced. Moving into the territory with tanks and troops, it faces a different threat, that of urban warfare. Israeli forces have been preparing for this eventuality, but so have Hamas. Once they have to start getting in these streets, all this technology suddenly is not worth very much. Modern tanks, they have so many electronic components, and electronics, as everyone knows, is extremely vulnerable. One small uh, shrapnel going into your uh, circuit boards and antennas, a $500 missile cannot destroy that tank, but it can make it pretty useless. And that's the asymmetry of it. So what would it take for the fighting to end? That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast, will the Biden administration yield to growing global pressure and help bring about a ceasefire in Gaza? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, Soren, I want to ask you this question about Israel, but I'll ask it now about Hamas. What would a Hamas victory look like in this war? Of course, uh, both sides... They have their wishful thinking, maximum demands. The Israeli maximum demand is to take Gaza and basically kill, arrest, or expel every member of Hamas. Here's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. As far as the day after goes, that day will only arrive after destroying Hamas. Gaza will be demilitarized. There will no longer be a threat from Gaza on Israel. And to ensure there won't be such a threat as long as necessary, the Israeli military will maintain control of Gaza to prevent terror from inside it. Is that doable? Probably not. Right. What do you do? You, you occupy the whole of Gaza, you 
keep it as a prison, and then you have your analysts go through every single man, it's very impractical. On the other hand, Hamas's, of course, ultimate victory uh, would be to liberate uh, everything, which means to destroy Israel and probably the Israelis. Now, that, of course, is not achievable. So let's say the victory for Hamas in Gaza would be uh, for Israelis to stop and go back in any way. So it wouldn't necessarily have to be a military victory. It could also be a political victory. Netanyahu also said that pressure from Israeli ground operations pushed Hamas to negotiate about the hostages. But there are reports that Hamas has paused the talks because of the ongoing chaos around Gaza's hospitals. So, um, you know, if uh, the outrage at all these civilian victims grows and the world stops Israel, then, of course, it's a victory for Hamas. Is that going to happen? Absolutely not. Right. At this stage, I think we're looking at months rather than weeks. But I also think that Israel knows that they're on a clock in terms of how much that even the U.S. can keep supporting this, considering all the protests. How do you think it's going so far from an Israeli point of view in, in terms of their strategy? I think that in Israel, there is a very carefully hidden a difference of opinion between the cabinet and the military. Israeli media are reporting that Benjamin Netanyahu is at odds with his war cabinet and military generals. Now, I'm, I'm sure that neither side wants this to go public, that they, they do not want to demonstrate openly their differences. But it is pretty obvious that uh, Netanyahu told the military, oh, you go there and attack Gaza. The only possible answer to that from the military would be a question, yes, we attack how much, with what purpose, when do we stop, what is our goal, what is our victory? I don't think that the Israeli military ever received clear instructions on that, and I think most of those generals and colonels, um, not to talk about simple soldiers, uh, they are asking themselves what will politics push us to? So the difficulty is going to come not only in terms of sweeping urban areas, but also specifically how to handle these tunnels. First of all, there's been talk about robots. Yes, robots exist. Israel has them with all sorts of sensors, uh, visual, electronic they can detect things, they can pick things up, they can explode things, blade explosives. But the, the lightest of these robots are, I would say, 30-ish kilos. Now, you have to get down the shaft. You need two hands to manipulate the rugs, and uh, you need to bring these robots down. These robots are, again, useless without a human being to carry them, place them somewhere else. So this is not possible. Second possibility for the tunnels is to uh, get air out of them or introduce some kind of gas that prevents those in tunnels breathing. You're more likely to see Israel try to seal those entrances or actually drop smoke bombs into the tunnels with Hamas operatives still inside to literally smoke them out. 
Now, I don't think, nobody thinks that Hamas fighters in tunnels all have proper protection against uh, any kind of a gas. That could be efficient. Unfortunately for Israel, it can only be locally efficient because these tunnels are very long. You'd end up with huge tanks of tear gas pumping inside and not knowing whether you have a sufficient concentration for it to be efficient 500 meters down the shaft. I imagine this would come at a huge loss of life. Yes. Tunnel fighting is extremely, extremely difficult, dangerous, and bloody. In tunnels, any explosion is magnified by an order of magnitude because they're so narrow, so constricted, that the blast will travel very far, very fast, and of course it's not safe for you to throw a hand grenade. You can use guns, but you again can't use standard uh, assault rifles because they're too big and clumsy uh, to carry in the tunnels. We assume that Israelis would be using night vision goggles that allow them to see in the dark. But once you fire a weapon, there is the uh, flash, the muzzle flash from firing that will blind you if you are wearing night vision goggles. And let's say you decide to fire, the first one will kneel down, the second one will fire above him. The rest, they cannot fire at the same time. And uh, if one of those people is hit, then the whole line is disrupted by the need to take him out and go around him. I don't know if people realize that that's that's what's going to have to happen. For weeks, the majority of the action has been these air assaults, truly massive bombardment of the Gaza Strip, which has been on our televisions. What was the military value of all that destruction? Why did thousands of civilians have to die and and hundreds of thousands have to lose their homes? I mean, some have called it collective punishment. Um, A lot of Palestinians we've been talking to in Gaza say that the, the bombings seem random, like there was no strategy at all. What do you think in terms of the military strategic value of of what's occurred over the past four weeks? Well, uh, it's obviously not a bombing that would conform to any militarily acceptable strategy. In a situation like Gaza, where the enemy has absolutely nothing to fight back against a bombing force. So... If they wanted to take out targets on the surface, it could have been done efficiently and pretty safely using smart bombs. Uh, If you don't hit it in the first pass, you revisit it, you hit it again. This obviously is not a bombing with an ultimate military goal. Several hospitals in Gaza reportedly under relentless bombardment. The death toll in Gaza surpassing 11,000. It surprises me that to this day, the bombing goes on unrelented. It's an overkill by all means. Uh, In purely military terms, reducing everything to rubble doesn't really help 
Sometimes, on the contrary, it makes their task more difficult. First of all, all that trouble will close many communications. So, yeah, you're a tank. Combat bulldozer has to come and clear that street for you. While that is happening, you are a sitting duck. And with that rubble, it's much easier for the defenders to hide. Then, of course, as uh, we've seen so many times in Iraq and in Syria, rubble is the best place to put your improvised explosive devices. So why produce that rubble? I don't know. But Zoran says there is one thing about this war on Gaza that has not gotten worse. What seems to be quite remarkable is that all sides, um, all big players, are uh, behaving quite responsibly. Iran is behaving responsibly. The U.S. is behaving responsibly. The Hezbollah is behaving responsibly. So all the escalations seem to be measured. But as time goes by, if the man in the street sees that his militia is not doing much, he will start getting very unhappy. And then someone will say, okay, let's hit Israel a bit harder. And that can get out of control. So basically, I don't think that there is a clear military solution to this conflict. I don't think that this is going to be a situation where one side reaches all of its military objectives and calls it a success and a victory. It's going to be something in between. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan, Zena Badr, Amy Walters, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. With Sari Al-Khalili, Ashish Malhotra, Faranisa Kampana, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, Miranda Lynn, and Sonia Bagat. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.